I think we're hitting the year and a half point of studying the gospel of Matthew. We have taken our time. And the reason we've taken our time, because we don't believe that the authority rests with me or anyone else that's standing on the stage to come up with these great ideas to share with you. We really, we really believe the fruitfulness and, and the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit is found in the words inspired by God. So we've been taking our time. We're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start our reading today in verse 69. To give you a little bit of the setting, if you're new here, if you've been missing the last couple of weeks, Jesus was facing the unjust persecution, this horrible treatment, the worst of humanity. In the last passage, as he was facing this ridiculous sort of sham trial where he was convicted of blasphemy, even as we saw the worst of humankind, which some of us have also experienced in our own life, we saw the best in Jesus as he responded to that unjust treatment without aggression, without retaliation, and yet with full confidence and faith in his Father in heaven. The trial continues this week as the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish high court, bring Jesus before the Roman authorities. They could convict him and give him this sentence of capital punishment, but only the Romans could actually execute on capital punishment because they owned the Jewish territory at this time. So there's going to be this picture of corrupt religion working together with corrupt politics. But that's kind of in the background. The foreground are these two narratives, these two stories of both Peter and Judas who will both betray Jesus and both be retreating in sorrow. Let's read here. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 69. The verses will be on the screens. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. That is the courtyard of Caiaphas' home. And a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on them by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Let's pause there this morning in our reading. At the beginning of our reading, we start with Peter in the courtyard, who Matthew has already told us has been following Jesus at a distance, trying to see the outcome of this trial that Jesus was being led into. And we're at the house of 
Caiaphas in the middle of the night, and the chief priests and the elders and the members of the Sanhedrin. This is the middle of the night. They're being summoned, so you can kind of picture everyone sort of entering at different times, Caiaphas's house and people bringing forth the false testimony we talked about last week. And, and really, you've got a lot of other people likely gathered, neighbors in the area, checking out the latest drama, the buzz on the street. Because if you remember in the first century here, there was no such thing as reality TV. There was just reality so where do people find their entertainment? Where's, where are you going to get the drama? This is the juicy stuff right here, what's going on. So you can kind of picture them gathering in this courtyard where Peter is. And Matthew says, a servant girl approaches Peter and identifies him as having been a part of Jesus' band, being associated with Jesus. Now, how is this the case? How would this servant girl know that Peter was with Jesus and his band? To us, I think we picture in the first century, this setting, a Jew is a Jew. He just kind of blends in with all the other Jews that are there in town. Well, that's not true any more than an American is just an American. Look, you take a small town Oklahoman and you throw him right into the middle of Southern California and you're going to see a difference. Am I right? Until they get accustomed to the culture and acclimate like Brock Snook did. Took a little bit, but now he's, he's just one of us, right? But I mean, he's going to stand out. And Jesus did stand out, and they were critical of him in the way that he would stand out. They had this suspicion about him because he stood out, right? There was this sense like Jesus and his band from this rural area, they're coming into town. They're a bunch of nobodies. How can these nobodies be somebody? The fact that Jesus was from the sticks with his band of disciples meant that they had already written him off before he could even speak because of what? His look, his dress. His accent, it all gave him away as being foreign to the average resident of Jerusalem. So despite what Peter wants to do here, he's woefully unable to blend in with the rest of the crowd. Even a little servant girl knows he doesn't belong. Yet try he does to retain his cover and says back to her, I don't even know this guy. I have nothing to do with this guy. Who are you? You're just this little servant girl. And so he moves away to the edge of the courtyard because he can see the rumors are starting to spread a little bit. The damage has already been done because even though he's moved to the fringe, another little servant girl points him out and says, no, wait, I know you. You've been with Jesus. And right here, you just go, kids, these two little servant girls, right? I've been in this position many times with my kids, right? You know, I, I've got my kids present. I'm out in public. I whisper to my wife something like, hey, you see that woman over there with the dog? I think we know her from somewhere. And my kids are like, woman? Woman with the dog? You mean that one woman over there with that dog that you're talking about right now? Is that the woman you're talking about? And I'm like, yo, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, hi, I'm just talking to my wife about maybe knowing you from... So, you know, they, they do that to you, right? And so this, these kids are, are, you know, blowing his cover. They're putting him on blast. And, and he responds, he doubles down. He says, you know what, I'm going to swear. I'm going to make an oath against Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no way I have nothing to do with the guy. But that's not going to ultimately save his cover. For a little bit more time passes, and sure enough, the rumors have been propagating in the crowd, and it says in verse 73, they all agree together that he must have been with Jesus given his rural accent. In response, Matthew says Peter doesn't just make oaths. He takes the drastic step of calling down curses. He's damning himself. 
possibly damning Jesus, calling curses upon Jesus, disassociating to the greatest degree that he possibly can. I do not have anything to do with this man. And then the rooster crows. And Peter understands that Jesus, his Lord, knows that he's failed the test of faith. It's like there's times I've obviously been in an argument and, you know, it's a set of disagreements with my wife. And I remember one time in particular, it wasn't just your average argument. It wasn't just your average disagreement. You know, every now and then you get the big one. You know, the one that's just completely irrational and emotional. And we're going back and forth, and it's the worst of our communication. You know, it's right up there with the worst in the history of our relationship. And would you know it, we're in the midst of this, and someone from the church is standing in our open doorway to our house hearing the entire thing. Wouldn't you know it? It totally changed from a moment that was very personal, a personal low that we're sharing together in private, to something that was very shameful. It's seen. That's what happened to Peter in these moments. He thinks he's having this very private moment of his denials. None of these people know him. He can keep his cover. He can say what he needs, right, to get out of the situation, calling down curses. But when the rooster crowed, he knew that he was seen in that moment of denial. Just as we are seen in our greatest denials in word and deed before our Lord. And that causes him to weep bitterly. Literally, you could translate that. He was grieving violently. And he ran away. He wasn't the only one who would grieve in that sort of way. Matthew chapter 27, we find that the trial has concluded against Jesus. And they're taking him to Pilate for the final sentencing. You know, the, again, he's got the authority to execute Jesus. And we have Judas who's seemingly processing things a little bit different now that this condemnation is coming against Jesus. We can imagine that Judas was betraying Jesus because, you know, Jesus wasn't fulfilling to the full extent that Jewish nationalistic vision that he had for Jesus. And he's getting that 30 pieces of silver because that's sort of some compensation for the time that he spent and wasted on this false religious movement that's going to come to nothing. So, so, you know, he's, he's against Jesus, he's betraying Jesus, but suddenly when he sees the cogs and the wheels of injustice working against Jesus, there's a change of heart. And I wonder if Judas himself had a moment like Peter, where things began to flip for him. If there was a moment, I think it was that moment in the garden that we talked about last week, when Judas went to Jesus with a kiss, and Jesus responded to Judas calling him friend. I wonder if that term was rattling around in his head, friend, friend, friend. And so he gets to the point, he's looking at this money, he's thinking about what he's done, and he just wants to get rid of it, that 30 pieces of silver. It's like his conscience is just going off. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you, you leave a store and you leave with an item that you didn't pay for. I'm not saying you're a thief, all right? I'm not accusing you, I'm just saying like, you know, you're in Home Depot, you're throwing everything in the bucket, you get home, you realize, wait a minute, I don't think I paid for that. Or, you know, my kids grabbed something and I didn't realize it until we got home. And it's like, wait a minute, we didn't pay for that. You know, I say to myself, well, it's no big deal, it's not worth that much. And then I like hear the items say to me, I am a big deal. 
And I go, well, 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 you know, okay, I know it's serious. So I'll get around to taking you back. And the thing's like, yeah, you will. When? When are you going to get around to taking me back? I don't know if this happens to you guys. Maybe I'm crazy. It's a conscience. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, there's just something wrong. There's something not right. And I can imagine these 30 pieces of silver just speaking to Judas, talking to him about this blood money. And he wants to wash himself of that blood. He wants to rid his conscience. So he goes to the chief priests and the elders, which is a fool's errand, because he's not going to get anything from them. He says in verse 4, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. But there's no sympathy from the institutional leaders. There will never be sympathy from the institution. They say, what does that have to do with us? That's your responsibility. They put it right back on him. It's a twofold denial, a denial of Judas's concerns. They couldn't care less for Judas. And it's a denial of the truth. They couldn't care less about executing an innocent person in Jesus. This is the group that Judas has sold his teacher out for, a group without values, without a conscience, without a heart, and more than happy to take his compliance to feed into their authority and influence and power. And now they're ridding themselves of him. It's the definition of a hollow religious institution. And this is too much. In anxiety and desperation, Judas throws the coins into the temple. He runs off, and the next thing he does is hang himself. Matthew has placed the account of Judas alongside Peter for a purpose. They both failed Jesus, and they're both filled with sorrow. One takes his life, and the other one preaches the first Christian sermon writes a good portion of the New Testament, becomes a pillar on which the early church, the people of God, are built, and then makes a confession of faith at the end of his life, the tradition tells us, led to him being crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Savior. What's the difference between these two people? Is it that one sinned and one didn't? One betrayed Jesus and one didn't? Well, we know that's not the case. They both sinned. They both betrayed Jesus. Is it that one was really sorry about it and one wasn't? Well, actually it says they were both sorry. So what's the difference between these two individuals? That one would be used by God and one would come to this bitter end. I believe there's a difference in the sorrow that they both experienced. And we get pastoral insight into that in a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Again, it's a follow-up letter. He gave them a really stern letter in 1 Corinthians because they lost it. Their behavior was so off the map, and they were tolerating all this sin in the community, so he came on really harsh. And yet they responded to it in a positive way. So he's following up on that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. He says, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, that is 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, to change. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness 
to see justice done, the right thing done. You see, there is a, I'm not getting emotional right now. I'm getting a dry mouth. There is a godly sorrow. And this is the first point I want to make. There is a godly sorrow, a righteous and holy sorrow that leads to repentance and leads to change, one that leaves no regret in your life. And that was the sorrow of Peter. All in this church have sinned. All in this church have really extreme moments in word and deed of denying their faith in Christ by either something they've said or something they've done. That is assumed. That is a given across the board. We don't need to act like that's not the case. That is the case of every single person that attempts to be a follower of Jesus. And the faithful, when they fail and when they betray, thank you, brother, they feel something about it, and then they pursue transformation. They pursue change in their life. So I say there is a place to feel something about your sin. There is a place for sorrow, godly sorrow, holy and righteous sorrow in the faith. There is a place for shame. There is a place for grief. There is a place for the full gamut of human emotion that is godly. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but there still is a conscience. That's the key. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about those who feel nothing anymore, those who it's just whatever in their life. They sin, they do wrong, and they don't have any shame. And it's the worldly. The worldly don't have any shame. The worldly don't have any grief about it. They don't have any sorrow about it, so they just go on indulging in sin. But godly sorrow, godly conviction is distinguished as a constructive sorrow. It's one that produces earnestness, eagerness, longing, concern, readiness. Let us not become unfeeling then about our sin and about our failures. Let's allow deep conviction and sorrow to produce change in us by God's Spirit. But let's also not go to the other extreme. Let's not allow our sorrow or shame to become destructive as it did for Judas. That is worldly sorrow of which Paul speaks that leads to death. It is one without restoration, without hope, and without vision. Worldly sorrow wallows. Worldly sorrow takes a place of defeat. Worldly sorrow leads us to a place of retreat when we consider our failures. It produces a slothfulness of our spirit. It goes from shame to self-hatred and self-loathing. Yes, again, there is a conscience in our Christianity, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus And we don't need any building quiet, self-loathing, propagating in this church community. It will never produce fruit that God desires. You guys understand what we're facing in our world today? We are embedded in a culture of multiplying, of expanding opportunities for temptation and sin. Never before in all of human history have we had so many means available to us, so many different ways to practice our greed, 
to foster our anger, to play to our lusts, our materialism, our pride, and our self-centeredness. Never before have there been this many companies producing this many tools, creating this many ways to profit off of your sin and my sin. We don't need to retreat into places of self-hatred and self-loathing. We need to understand the freedom that we have in Christ. We need to own it. Any one of us that's in that place of denial, any one of us that's in that place of sin needs to feel the confidence to bring that into the light, to bring that into fellowship, to speak what's true, to experience the grace of brothers and sisters who are operating in the truths of the gospel, to see the full restoration of individuals and that longing and that earnestness for the more, the life of Christ of righteousness that He won for every single one of us. For God so loved, He died to redeem us from sin. Let's let God's love and Spirit turn our sorrow into transformation because Christ has removed the guilty verdict from upon us all. Now that's the example of Peter over Judas. But there's one more party that needs mentioning from this passage, the chief priests and the elders. In the final verses, what we read and what we see is that the religious leaders have this funny little dilemma of what to do with the blood money, the 30 coins. It's blood money they can't accept according to their religious laws, their laws around purity. Do you feel the irony that they can't accept this money? this blood money. You recall that they paid the blood money that they can now not accept. They didn't care. They care about this money a lot and what to do with it, but they didn't care about convicting an innocent man in Jesus. They have no value for human life, that of Judas or Jesus, but they're worried about being true to the smallest facet of their phony and fraudulent religious system. And it's an ingenious use of the funds that they come up with. This is really clever on their part. They've got this unclean money. What do you do with it? Well, they decide we're going to buy this plot of land and turn it into a cemetery for foreigners. Because all these people would be coming into Jerusalem on pilgrimage and they wouldn't know where they're coming from. They die in Jerusalem. Who's this guy? I don't know. I don't know. Well, you know, Jewish laws demanded that they treat those dead bodies with great respect. So they needed to, they needed to bury them. So they say, oh, this is great. We'll use this unclean money to buy a cemetery, a place of uncleanness. That, that sounds like that covers the bases. But you see, they had no value for the innocent life of Jesus, but they have this reverence for the dead bodies of strangers. They had no value for human life, but they had a big debate about theology. And I imagine they just felt so clever, so self-satisfied when they added it all up. Ooh, this is exactly what we'll do with the money. And they patted themselves on the back. And I submit, is there anything worse than religion without sorrow that feels nothing at all? That's that third party. In the end, I feel they were in just as sorry of a state as Judas, grossly engaged in the war of ideas, but unfeeling about their sin. Theologically precise, 
but completely heartless. The experts on religion, but Jesus said they're just whitewashed tombs filled with the bones of the dead. And so I say, don't be afraid of feeling sorrow. Don't be afraid of feeling godly sorrow. Be wary when you feel nothing at all. Be wary when you feel nothing at all. Psalm 51, verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. God can work with humility. God can work with sorrow. He can't work with a heart of stone. So I'm going to ask this morning and that we would pray together that the Lord would take the heart of stone that some of us have and turn it into a heart of flesh, of weakness, of brokenness as we understand the weight of our own sin and the weight of God's love in spite of it. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, that's what we're asking for. Uh, to think the depths that they sunk to in this religion and institution and so precise in their theology and so exacting and so clever in their logic and intelligence and so devoid of heart in the synagogue, in your scriptures, and absolutely absent of who you were and who you are. Lord, let that not be us to become these unfeeling people, uh, feeling nothing about our sin, feeling nothing for our neighbor, feeling nothing for those who are ideologically opposed to us, people we consider our enemy. God, you called us to love in every single one of those settings. You called us to have concern Lord, you called us to understand the weight of our errors so that we could see the magnitude of your love. God, don't dull our conscience. Increase our conscience. Increase our sensitivity to sin. Things that we just brush aside, things that we just accept as normal, would we accept no longer if they're not in line with you, Jesus? If they're not in line with your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be bothered. I pray that we would be stirred up. I feel like we need to grieve, Lord. Not so that we can fall into self-loathing and self-hatred and retreat and despair, but so that we can be filled with longing, earnestness, eagerness for the life that you intend for us, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, Lord, we'd understand that you died to remove that sin from us. It wasn't simple. The cost wasn't light. It was the greatest it could be. So, Lord, I pray you take us, even this morning, to that broken and contrite spirit, not to break us, but to mend us, to grow us, to heal us, to change us.